Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. Kiwi Rail has been told to find new, cheaper options to upgrade its fleet of inter-islander ferries. This after the Finance Minister yesterday put the kibosh on any extra money, on the extra money needed to complete the port upgrades. Uh, These are required, of course, for the new larger ferries that were on order. The $400 million that has already been spent on the project uh, is likely to be gone, uh, with the latest cost four times what was originally estimated, or maybe gone that money. The former Finance Minister Grant Robertson echoes Nicola Willis in saying the added cost was not acceptable, but he says certainty is now needed over how a sustainable and reliable Cook Strait service can be provided. I asked Kiwi Rail Chief Executive Peter Reedy, what happens now? We have to look at different options and, and we certainly respect the government's role as shareholder and funder to make that decision. We believe the current solution of, of more capacity, uh, better efficiency and lower carbon, uh, bigger ships was the best option. That won't be happening now. We've obviously got to get back up on Monday and say, well, what are the options? And that does include maybe lease ships or different options. But, you know, I think that's a decision we've got to get around the table with customers, the government and our board and and work that through. Is it possible to lease ships or find smaller ships that are less costly that will also have rail capacity that is required? No, it's not. No, it's not. And, and that's, this whole solution was about connecting rail with freight and, and passengers across the Cook Strait. Now, if we go and get lease ships, it won't be. They'll, they'll be older ships. Uh, look, we'll have to work that through. But uh, the solution we had on the table was fit for purpose for New Zealand, fit for purpose for growth and fit for purpose for safety. So, so do you, sorry to interrupt you, but do you, does that mean, do you want to keep running the ferry service if you can't run rail in future? Because that's what you seem to be saying. No, I think uh, if we can't run a rail service, then we've got to have a look at different options uh, for New Zealand. And, uh, and you know, we will, we will think through that. Uh, so, so is one of those options you simply pulling out and saying we're a rail company, we, we shift freight around, we're not doing ferries if we can't put our rail on it? No, not at all. I mean, we're a transport, we're a transport services company. The Inter-Islander is a critical connection uh, across the Cook Strait. So one option is do you... Do you have rail enabled across Cook Strait? Obviously, this decision says, well, we, we can't invest in the land side rail infrastructure, so we've got to look at other options. But that doesn't mean uh, we're out of the Cook Strait ferry service. That's a key part of the transport connectivity and the service we offer our customers. What would it mean for New Zealand if we could no longer transport rail across the ferry with the ferries in terms of our emissions, in terms of dealing with freight around the country? What would that mean? Well, well, there's there's billions of dollars of freight go across the Cook Strait. There's over a million passengers we take over the Cook Strait. It means you disconnect the main trunk line. Um, you just got to have a look at what happened in the Kaikoura earthquake when we didn't have the rail line from uh, Picton to to Christchurch. You had trucks take another four hours. Uh, you had countdown and other supermarkets unable to get their goods. You had two fatalities on the road when Kaikoura happened. So certainly the rail connection is critical to supply chain and all of our customers and exporters see that. It's also part of our export advantage. You know, this country is about growing exports, imports into this country. It's about rail adds a significant advantage along with road together. Uh, But, you know, Monday we'll get up off off the map and look at other options.
Can you explain to New Zealanders how the cost of this project blew out from, what, $775 million initial estimate to nearly $3 billion in the space of about four years? What look, was the cost blowout? Well, look, the design uh, cost that got put on the table in June 21 was $1.45 billion. Um, and it's obviously increased since then, uh, and, and it's increased through a number of factors. Firstly, you know, you've had seismic code change, flood modelling code change. You're having, you're having to lift Wellington a metre down by the port side there. Um, there was a lot of decisions at the time around, was it King's Wharf, was it Kaiforafora? You know, there was some but, decisions With respect, there. Peter, we've known about seismic issues in Wellington for a long time. The Kaikoura quake, quake was a perfect reminder of that. Why weren't those things factored in at the beginning? Why was the, I mean, was this just a low ball offer to get it across the line? No, the engineering codes and flood modelling codes has changed, but actually the bit, the, that, that's one of the costs. The actual other increased cost was uh, you, you've also got um, uh, significant uh, infrastructure costs. Even the roading costs in this country have increased 23% over the last four years. So there's been a numerous number of uh, things that the project's taken longer, lots more design reviews. Uh, it's, it's one of probably the most, complex marine engineering projects this country would have done for some time. Uh, So, you know, as you bring contractors in, as we have the last year, to really get into the the constructability of this project, it's been clear that based on the design and the complexity, this is what the cost is. Is there no way at the beginning, earlier stages of these projects, of this project, to have foreseen the real cost I mean, to be so wildly out. I mean, even in the last stages, I see in November of this year, you, you sort of added about, two, was it 200 million or 300 million to the project in the space of a few weeks? I mean, that's a massive blowout in a very short space of time. What happens with projects, and you see them all through the roading projects, as you get design maturity hardening up, you start to get more confidence in your constructability and your risks. Uh, in the last two weeks, yeah, we added more to the contingency just to make sure we had an envelope, which is what we call a P50 to, to, to a P90, to give us confidence on that. That's normal for large projects. They all go through this design maturity, cost escalation stage. Yeah, the cost has increased. I think really what we've got to is saying to get a fit-for-purpose structure and, and seawalls and ships going forward – this is the infrastructure we need. But what I can say, what I can say, and you raised it, is that even if we bought three smaller ships in, it's only going to reduce the infrastructure cost by 7%. We've done all that information. We've had global experts on this. So what so, do you mean? Sorry, sorry, just to come back there, you're saying even if we get three, sort of, if we'd gone with the other option of three smaller ships, and if, in fact, we have to get smaller lease ships, you're saying that the port work will still have to be done? Yes, yes, it does. And the actual, these ships are only 20% longer. Uh, We carry a lot more capacity for customers. There's still a lot of work to be done on the the So, So what happens? Because you've you've done, the terminals have been, you've had terminal closures. There's all sorts of changes down at the the Wellington end, isn't there? There's a temporary baggage claim and that sort of stuff. Will you continue with all that work to get new terminals and new docking? And where where do you get the money for that? No, all that all that's finished now. We'll have to now on Monday start to demobilise that. But all that infrastructure is still going to be of, of, of value. You've still got significant enhancements being made on Wellington side. Uh, we'll now start to work with contractors to finish those works, make good, close them out. Uh, and, you know, government has given us funding to, to enable us to do that. What do you think that the sunk cost is here? How much has been spent that we're just simply not going to see any benefit from? 
Hundreds well, of millions? Look, look, at the moment, we've spent 400 million, but a lot of that is construction, 70% of that's construction. We're still going to get the benefit of that, and you can see it as you, as you go down to Wellington and Picton. So that's not going to be lost. Um, obviously, the design cost and, that, and those things you can't recover. But How much spent on the design and any potential penalty with the shipbuilder? Oh, that, you know, that's a commercial factor. We've still got to sit down with our board, government, to work through what are the options uh, with the shipbuilder. I mean, do you carry on building it and sell it? Uh, do you, could you sell it as it is right now? There's a number of commercial options. We've got to sit down with other players and work that Sorry, through. so that suggests that you, that you do have some fairly hefty penalties if that's being considered. That's a realistic option, that you would build them anyway and sell them to someone else. Well, it's it's an option on the table. We've, we've, we've got to look at all sorts of options. At the moment, this decision's only come out the last 48 hours. We'll sit down, as I said, next week, and we'll work through that with all sorts of other stakeholders. Uh, and just finally, just finally, in terms of the practicalities here, if we have those smaller ships, the leased ships, will that limit their sailing capacity in big storms, uh, some of the issues around you know frequency of the timetable? Well, 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 yes, it will. I mean, as you know, this is one of the, la- the most dangerous patches of water in the Cook Strait. And what we've been designed is a fit-for-future uh, ships that are made for this condition. Uh, so it's very difficult to go and get a ship uh, that might have been doing the English Channel to bring it in here. Um, and that's obviously one of the risks. And that's why the option we put on the table was the right solution for New Zealand to deliver a safe and resilient connection across Cook Strait. But look, we've got to look at other options now. And our call out is let's sit down with everyone, including customers, to get and stand behind a solution we can all work for in the future. Well, a new global deal on climate change has been approved by almost 200 countries at the COP28 summit in Dubai. The deal calls on all countries to move away from the use of fossil fuels. Well, for more on the deal, we're joined now by Guardian reporter Patrick Greenfield, who's been following the COP28 summit. Uh, Good morning. Welcome to the program, Patrick. Let's talk about this text that has been agreed upon and the what was included and what wasn't, which was the phase term out phase out I beg your pardon yes I think we can say with some certainty now that this is the beginning of the end of the fossil fuel era I think today was was history uh, in, in the plenary hall in Dubai we saw a clear signal that we are gonna I mean I'm, I'm 30 right in, in my lifetime but um, when, I'm, when I'm a grandfather hopefully um, we, we won't have coal oil and gas in the same way um, that we do now and humanity around the world will be living in a a different way right but what what remains to be seen is what that transition looks like and and what are the the bumps along the way it really was quite an extraordinary moment in the plenary hall I I was there uh, expecting to see um, the small island states, Saudi Arabia, China, India, the US, all of the usual suspects slug it out over a, a, a draft agreement that we had been waiting for, I think, nearly a, nearly a day for. Um, most of us had kind of barely slept. Uh, and it passed very quickly with almost, uh, well, with, with no input um, from anybody in, in, in the hall. Um, and that leaves it in a, in a complicated situation. The small island states didn't object in the sense that they accept the agreement. They accept that it's passed, which is crucial because this is this is non-binding um, 
it, the Paris Agreement is legally binding, but the, the decisions are, are, are not under it. It, it. It's quite complicated in that respect. So it really relies on, on the kind of the world coming together. Um, but but hearing the voices from Samoa and, and the Marshall Islands um, really, I, I guess, betrays uh, a bit a bitter a bitter pill that's in this agreement too that the world probably hasn't quite done enough to to limit 1.5 degrees uh here in dubai uh and that's something in the, the kind of geopolitical reality of the world that we're going to have to start to to accept and then increasingly scientists are saying so and that's also historic but maybe for the wrong reasons mm. well they have made what well, fossil fuels have been included in the agreement for the first time the smaller island nations though uh, critics saying it contains a litany of loopholes so overall is the cop 28 summit a success do you think yes i think it, it, it's, it's an odd mixture but uh, definitely to see uh, an oil oil ceo uh, Sultan Al Jabra presiding over this is, is is remarkable in many ways, but in short, he did it. He has delivered the, especially the Saudi Arabia and, and other big producing oil states, going along with an agreement to 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 end the fossil fuel era. Really, in spirit, that there's a lot really to to kind of um, behind that now, and uh, so, something changed for humanity today here here in Dubai that that will filter down into every country in the world. Um, but of course, as as you say, there are loopholes. Um, some countries, some big polluters, want to dwell on uh, carbon capture technology um, and and things like that, that that don't really work at the moment, or kind of pull in a, a fraction of the emissions that, that we actually put out there when when they when it does work um and, and other solutions that that are just a distraction really from the basic task of needing to to use renewable sources clean energy and, and finding a different way to to live um and that's the real risk in this right that um we we to meet 1.5 degrees we need deep fast cuts to emissions that don't seem to be becoming at the moment fossil fuel use does seem to be peaking um around this period maybe maybe it already has peaked um if you are some some experts in this space but we need it to fall quickly if, we, if we're going to limit global heating to to that 1.5 degrees which i mean after that point things um we, we start getting near, near, near tipping points and, and kind of dangerous levels that that, that really do, do change things mm. thank you very much for your time this morning that was guardian reporter patrick greenfield who's been following the cop 28 summit in dubai well, the UN Humanitarian Office has reiterated that Gaza is facing a public health disaster. The health ministry in Gaza has said its supply of vaccines for children has run out. It's called on international organisations to deliver more vaccines urgently. 85% of the population of Gaza has been displaced by the war with Israel. People are living in overcrowded, unsanitary shelters. Heavy rain overnight in the region has caused a further anguish for Palestinians in Gaza as the shelters balloon to overcapacity. Many are in makeshift shelters or sleeping rough. Nabal Farak of the Palestinian Red Crescent spoke to the BBC. People are lacking food, water, electricity, uh, medicine, as well as uh, fuel. And this is also affecting the situation of the health system, which is literally uh, collapsed after a majority of hospitals went out of service. And those who are still operating barely uh, 
can uh, provide the minimum medical services. Well, Israel is continuing to come under pressure from key allies. The U.S. President Joe Biden has criticized Israel's indiscriminate bombing in Gaza. Yesterday, Mr. Biden said that defeating Hamas should not come at the cost of innocent civilians. We have made it clear to the Israelis and are aware that the, independent, the, the safety of innocent Palestinians is still of great concern. And so the actions they're taking must be consistent with attempting to do everything possible to prevent innocent Palestinian civilians from being, being hurt, murdered, killed. Now, despite those comments from Mr Biden, he reiterated that Israel could count on the support of the United States. For more on this, we are joined from Jerusalem by Philip Crowther, Crowther from AP. Crowther, good morning. Welcome to the program, Philip. Hello, thank you very much. Can you bring us up to date with the latest on the fighting in Gaza and the deaths are being reported on both sides? Yes, on both sides, particularly today, with a deadly ambush in a dense urban neighborhood in northern Gaza on Israeli troops. This was in a part of the Gaza Strip that the defense minister, Yoav Gallant, uh, had described as having only pockets of resistance. But this does seem to indicate that there is still some significant resistance from Hamas. The Israeli military says that uh, troops lost contact with four soldiers, then staged a rescue operation, but that they were ambushed with gunfire and explosives. This led to the deaths of nine Israeli soldiers, 10 altogether in one day. That's one of the deadliest days for the Israeli army uh, since uh, its military operation in Gaza uh, began. Uh, this is despite continuous airstrikes that they are still uh, losing soldiers. It's 115 members of the Israeli military military who've died since this war began. Of course, that number pales in comparison to the huge amount of Palestinians who have died since the start of Israel's war against Hamas. It's the Hamas-run Ministry of Health that gives out those numbers, and it says it's now over 18,600. And what about, what are the authorities in Gaza saying about the humanitarian situation there? Well, it's very serious and it's very dramatic. Uh, you mentioned uh, the rain earlier. Uh, that has made an almost indescribable situation even worse. Uh, very heavy rains, particularly in southern Gaza, led to floods in some of the tent camps that have been set up in that part of the Gaza Strip. Um, just to explain the geography of the Gaza Strip, essentially uh, people have been told by the Israelis to go as far south as possible. They were told to evacuate the north then to evacuate the central part of the Gaza Strip and now move to the furthest part south near the border town of Rafah on the border with Egypt. And with a huge amount of Palestinians amassing there now, you also have to take into account that Egypt is only accepting a very small amount of refugees per day. In other words, there are a lot of people in a very, very small space inside of what was already a very small and densely populated Gaza Strip. And has there been any reaction uh, from Israel in the sort of change of tone and language, uh, including from President Biden with his comments there and the UN General Assembly vote as well uh, back on the agenda? Yeah, it's been acknowledged uh, by the uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu today. He acknowledged the international pressure, but despite that, he says, quote, we are continuing until the end and nothing 
will stop us. Certainly not, it would appear, an international outcry and an emphatic call at the United Nations uh, yesterday for a humanitarian ceasefire. And the criticism from U.S. President Joe Biden doesn't seem to have affected uh, Benjamin Netanyahu much either. These were quite strong words coming from Israel's main ally when the U.S. president talks about indiscriminate bombing. Now, this is likely to be discussed in person uh, in the next two days when the White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan uh, travels to Israel. He will be meeting Benjamin Netanyahu and they will presumably be talking about when this war might end and when Israel might be willing to end it, but also how it can limit this huge number of civilian casualties. Thank you very much for your time this morning. That was Philip Crowther, our correspondent from AP there. And Wellington's hospital scorecard on the way it trains junior doctors to analyse things like MRIs, CTs and ultrasound scans has plummeted from what was an A to a basement level D. Sounds quite bad. Well, is it? Phil Pennington is looking at this issue and joins us now. Good morning, Phil. Morning, Corin. Certainly sounds bad. What's the story? Yeah, well, it is bad. So this is the College of Radiology. They go in, they review all these key training parts all around the country where the hospitals have them. Wellington's one of the national centres, so it's key for this. If we don't train these radiologists, these junior doctors to take these scans, they, they read the scans. They're the ones who are going to tell you what's actually wrong with you. If we don't train them well enough, we're not going to have them coming out the other end. And unfortunately here, you've gone from A to D, and there is a host of problems. D means that there's multiple significant serious problems that they have to sort out, and the deadline is March. And the flip side of that is that they've got this long list of improvements they have to make. Unfortunately, heading into the new year, things are looking worse at Wellington because they are continuing to bleed, to to lose radiology expertise. The clinical leader is leaving soon. You've got some um, several specialist technicians who are leaving, so they aren't getting the extra people that they're going to need to address these problems. Because the core here is they don't have enough seniors to supervise. And is it juniors. staff that, yeah. that has driven this problem? The fact that, that lack of staff. It, it it is that that would be at the heart of it. I mean, you see other things here. The physical spaces aren't great, but most of this comes back to staff. It talks about some sort of rather patchy um, supervision. Trainees not getting the full range of stuff that they should do um, simply that um, well 8 out of 12 categories where it wasn't up to scratch, that's a lot Auckland Hospital actually, they lurched into D area for a couple of weeks earlier this year but they only had one or two things they had to do and they were quickly out of it again, so you can turn this around but the signs here aren't good. What is the immediate fix then for for, for them? Well, if Tufata Oral would talk to us, we went to them about midday yesterday and they haven't come back to us. Um, we were saying, well, you know, come on, for public safety and for the quality of what you're turning out here, please tell us what the plan is. They haven't come back to say. I'm not sure why. Normally they're a bit more prompt than that. Um, I'm sure they're going to tell us that they are trying to recruit, but they've been saying that, and they say that to every crisis that comes up, that we are trying to recruit. That hasn't happened here. Radiology it really has particular problems with bleed of people experienced people to Australia now and to the private sector in New Zealand, which has, we've been reported, been burgeoning. Mm. They're paying more money, less pressure, so why wouldn't you go? And that is just continuing, and that's part of the Wellington problem. Mm. So if you're reliant on the public sector for an MRI at the moment, what is the, what is, what is the prognosis, so to speak? Are you going to be facing big delays? Well, there is a big long wait list anyway. Um, 
all around the country there's long wait lists. They do they do come and go. Wellington again has a particular problem where they their wait list is such and their lack of people is such that they have to outsource a lot of that. But their technology for outsourcing, because if you're getting a report a scan done elsewhere by a private provider and then they're reporting back to you to diagnose it. That technology to transfer has to be really good and I've reported on the fact that a lot of that IT's not been up to scratch either. There's a lot of ironies here. The Association of Salary Medical Specialists, the Senior Doctors Union, in September, remember Dunedin lost its training accreditation for cancer doctors, junior cancer doctors. And we've also had problems with standards that have upset accreditation in radiation, in radiology in Hawke's Bay and in Southland mm. and in Palmerston North. That, that, that union said in September, watch out, shortage of staff, this sort of thing, this loss of accreditation, this lowering of standards, this can spread throughout the country. Well, that's a real worry because so what is the wait time at private? I mean, you know. Um, well, what we hear from private um, and what we see from, for instance, the annual reports at Infratil, which own some of the really big radiology firms, is that they're going gangbusters. Um, we get their sort of, uh, they don't talk about wait lists, they talk about how many they do. That's what they're trying No, well, we get and this two tiered really situation, don't we? Where yes. If you've got money, then you can get in. And if that, if that is allowed to spread around the country, that's a real concern. If there's a lack of capacity in the public sector, this continues. Well, this is the concern for Minister Retti. He's got a lot of concerns. He's got the smoking um, Ferrari on at the moment. Of course, that's meant to free up some money, if, so maybe they can put that into this radiology. Interestingly, on this whole public private thing, I see in this US right now, a very different system, but the White House in the US has just launched a cross-government public inquiry into corporate greed in healthcare. And over there they are saying what you are seeing is consolidation and monopolisation by corporates of healthcare that's leading to higher costs and lower, worse quality. Mm. We obviously don't want to go down that. No, we don't. There's some big issues there for, for the new minister to think about. You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories. 